Before Shabani passed away, he shared with me his testimony. It was a testimony that he was not particularly proud of and didn't like to be shared. But I'm just going to guess that him being at the, being at the, the, the table with Jesus right now, he's not going to sweat it a whole lot if I tell you. And so I remember him telling me that one day in, in, uh, where he lived in Swaziland, this preacher came into town to, tell the, to have this tent revival. And he was a, a powerful preacher filled with the Spirit of God. So much so that the entire community began to shut down as they would go and they would listen to this great preacher preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And numerous people were coming to faith. So Shabani and his friends decided that since all of the town was shutting down, that this was a prime opportunity for them to go and loot in the city as other people were listening to the preacher. And so they had in mind a particular store and a particular store owner that they were going to target. And they knew that this store owner had intended to go to the tent revival. And so what they decided they should do, just to be prudent, was to go to the tent revival and make sure that the store, the store owner was there. And if they saw that the store owner was there, they would go and they would rob his store and be finished before he got out of the revival. And so Shabani says they go to the revival and he's there with his whole posse and he's, he's listening and, and he's looking for the man. And, and before he can really even recognize whether or not the man is there, He's just arrested by what the preacher is saying. And, and, and he sits and he listens to every word, hanging on every phrase that the pe preacher says. Until eventually he realizes they've missed their opportunity. The, the sermon has come to an end and everybody is soon to return home. So he and his friends leave and they're, and they're frustrated with him because they didn't leave in time and now it's too late. But the tent revival is going to go yet another night. And so what they decide they're going to do is they're going to do and try to execute the exact same plan the following night. And so the following night comes and Shabani and his friends show up again to make sure that the, that the store owner is there. And, and sure enough, the store owner is there. But the same exact thing happened again. And Shabani says, I can, I can remember sitting and listening to this man preach and knowing more than anything else I had ever heard in my entire life that what this man was saying was the truth. And that night, instead of going and robbing the man's store, he went and he laid down his life for the Lord Jesus, a life that before it was over would go on to plant seven churches. And it's a remarkable and powerful testimony of the grace of God and of the timing of God and of the providence of God and of the power of God and of the power of the gospel, isn't it? But you want to know something? My salvation, my testimony sounds nothing like that. I love hearing testimonies like Shabani's. I love hearing testimonies of, of places right now in the Middle East where, where, they're here, where Muslims are having dreams about this man Jesus that they know nothing of and are sent to specific people that they've never met before to go and to say, look, tell me about the dream. Tell me about Jesus. I love those, those stories. And I believe that God is working powerfully, supernaturally like that right now throughout the world. And I believe that he has worked like that throughout the generations. 
But you know what? I bet most of us don't have a testimony like that. Let me tell you what my testimony was. I grew up hearing the gospel. I grew up in church basically as long as I can remember. I grew up sitting and listening to preachers. I grew up going to vacation Bible schools. I grew up hearing people talk about Jesus and talking about the cross and talking about the resurrection. I grew up hearing all of those things. And can I tell you what they were to me? Fairy tales. Interesting, exciting compelling, well-told fairy tales. And I can remember even as a teenager, as I came into my, my teenage years and, and had somebody every single week preaching the gospel to me clearly and living out the gospel in front of me and inviting me to be a part of their lives and see the gospel and see how it changed them. Did you know that day in and day out, I watched them, I saw them, I heard them, but I didn't obey them. I didn't know the gospel. And it took three years, three years of somebody preaching every single week. It took three years of somebody calling me. It took three years of me learning what the Bible says, seeing the power of the Bible in somebody else's life. Three years for me to experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit for my own sins before ultimately I gave my life to Christ. It took three years of faithful, week in, week out, day in, day out, unspectacular, fairly mundane gospel faithfulness to win me to Christ. And you know what I bet? I bet that's the testimony of most of us in here. I bet the majority of us in here did not come to Christ in a Damascus Road experience like Paul in which the glory of God literally struck us blind and we say, who are you, Lord? I, I bet most of us didn't have that experience. I bet for most of us who are now in Christ, it took a period of time. It took a period of faithful teaching, a period of faithful witnessing by someone, a period of faithful investment in us before ultimately we came to faith. Maybe that was a mom or a dad. Maybe that was a friend. Maybe it was a youth pastor. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. But somebody over a period of time invested in you in the long haul. And over time, God revealed to you like he revealed to me that this is far more than a fairy tale. This is the hope for me. And this is the hope of mankind. And being that I see that as being the norm, being, being the, the most common experience for people that come to faith in Christ, here's what I'm proposing. I'm proposing that our primary method of evangelism should match the primary way in which people come to Christ. That our primary method of evangelism, now, here, when I, now I want you to hone in on that word primary, not our only method of evangelism. Not our only method of evangelism. Because I believe there are people that God prepares in a specific moment, a stranger we meet, that we share the gospel with, and they come to faith. I believe that. 
But I believe our primary method of evangelism should align with the primary way that people come to Christ. And that is over a period of time with the investment of your life, with the investment of the gospel, with inconvenience and obligation to yourself that you might invite them to come and follow Christ. And to that end, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. One of the most, one of my very favorite stories in all, uh, Acts chapter 8, I'm sorry. One of my very favorite stories in all of the scripture. And I think it has a lot to teach us about the way our personal evangelism should look. All right, so we have corporate evangelism, evangelism we do as a church, but then we have personal evangelism. Personal evangelism is the evangelism that I believe is most clearly mandated in the scripture and most common to the, in the life of the Christian. So in Acts chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 26 together. We'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, God's word says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. There is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. When we step into church history here, we really step into a fascinating time. We step into a time in which the Spirit of God has descended upon the church and that now in the Spirit of God, they are going out with great power, with great courage and with great boldness. And when we come into Acts chapter 8, we're introduced to Philip. Now this is not Philip the disciple, this is Philip the deacon, one of the seven that has just been raised up in Acts chapter 6 by the church to tend to the needs of the church. But Philip was a great and mighty spirit-gifted evangelist. 
And so we come into Acts chapter 8 and we start with Philip going and he has basically what is this huge crusade and he preaches to the Samaritans and in Samaria there's a great movement of the Spirit and many of them come to faith in Jesus Christ. But while Philip, as Philip has finished in Samaria, then the Lord sends him to Gaza, to a deserted place. Now, at this time, there were kind of two places that, you could, that Gaza could refer to. There was the, the old Gaza, a Gaza that had been destroyed in capt- as the, the people had been taken captive. And there was a new, a rebuilt Gaza. Most scholars believe that he is being sent down to the old Gaza in a road that is in disrepair as the scripture give us a, a footnote there or a, or a narrator's comment there that says, now this is a desert place. This is a desert road, a deserted place, a place in the desert, no people, okay? So he's sent there and there he meets an Ethiopian. And what's fascinating about meeting an Ethiopian is that in the Greek and in the Roman culture, Ethiopia was considered to be the ends of the earth. It was considered to be the farthest most powerful, the farthest most uh, civilized kingdom. And so literally in Acts chapter 8, you see Philip living out Acts 1-8 where it says the Spirit is going to come, you're going to receive great power, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we actually see this in the life of Philip being lived out very literally, being lived out very practically. Now what I want us to do is I want us to key in on four key phrases from Acts chapter 8. Four key phrases that I think are going to kind of unlock this passage to see what it has to say to us in terms of our personal evangelism, in terms of the method by which we can take part in advancing the kingdom of God and calling people to be Christians. The first phrase that I want to focus on and really the phrase that I want to build the whole sermon around is when he says in verse 31, this is the eunuch talking, how can I unless someone guides me? Now I want you to have this picture in your mind because this is pretty awesome. All right, so you have have Philip. Philip has just witnessed a great move of God in Samaria. And it says that an angel comes to him and he says that you're supposed to go to Gaza. Now, if I'm Philip and the angel is my travel agent, I need a few more details, right? Like, I, I, I want to know why is it that I'm supposed to go into the midst of the desert? Because the angel doesn't fill in any of the blanks, does he? The angel doesn't tell him what the mission is. The angel doesn't tell him what the purpose is. The angel doesn't tell him that he's going to be taken care of or that he's going to be okay or that it's all going to work out in the end. The angel doesn't tell him any of those things that we want to hear from God before we go somewhere. But instead, the angel just says, you are to go to Gaza. And what does Philip do? Philip goes. Now, when Philip gets there, the Spirit prompts Philip. The Spirit presses upon Philip's heart when he looks out and he sees an Ethiopian eunuch riding. It says chariot. Uh, it would have been like a carriage, not, not like the two-wheeled chariots. When you think about, you know, uh, the, the Egyptians going and chasing the people of Israel, this would have been more like a, a carriage with a driver. And so he, he sees this eunuch and the Spirit says, that's your mission. That's why you're, to, you're here. So go and engage. Go talk to the eunuch and tell him uh, and, and and I'll show you what to do from there. 
And so Philip runs. It literally says that he runs, that the, the chariot is in motion. And so it's not moving quickly. And Philip begins to run it, run it down. And as, as Philip is running down, he can hear this eunuch reading out loud the scroll of Isaiah. And the eunuch is not just reading uh, any part of Isaiah. He is reading a very specific part of Isaiah. He is reading Isaiah chapter 53, the chapter of the suffering servant, the chapter that teaches us so much about the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so you can imagine, man, Philip is digging. You know, he's digging. And by this point, he's probably a little bit winded. And so he's hearing this guy read over his own loud breathing and over his own exalt. Man, he's, he's digging and he's dodging rocks and he's doing the whole deal. And he's running. And, and you can just imagine this exasperated, exhausted Philip shouting out to this eunuch that's reading the scroll. Hey, do, do you understand what you're doing? Do you understand what you're reading? Now, I just got in my mind this really, really chill African, right? I mean, he is an important man. He is the secretary of the treasury of one of the mighty kingdoms of this day. And I just got, it, I just got in my mind this really chill African being like, now how in the world am I supposed to know what this means without somebody helping me? And Philip's like, clue here, I'm willing to help. I'm willing to talk to you. And he's digging. And finally, the, the eunuch says, well, come on board, man. What are you running for? What are you running for? We're in the desert. There's not water here. Come, hang out with me on the carriage for a little while. And it says that beginning with that passage, beginning with Isaiah 53, that, that uh, Philip begins to unpack for this eunuch the entirety of the good news, all of the good news. You know, the eunuch had the Bible but the eunuch didn't have the gospel, did he? It's, it's, amazing. it's, it's interesting that he says, and he's reading, and, he's, and he's, he's got all of the script, he's got all of Isaiah, and he's been reading, and he's obviously a man that is not without some intelligence, without some intellect. He has a high standing in one of the mighty kingdoms, and he's reading all of these things, and yet he doesn't understand that the eunuch has the Bible, but he doesn't have the gospel. He can read the Bible, but he can't see the gospel. You know, I think that's pervasive in our community. I think it's prevalent in our community to have people, to have neighbors, to have classmates, to have co-workers that have the Bible, have some knowledge of the Bible, may even have some evidence of a Judeo-Christian worldview, and yet though they have the Bible, have some knowledge of the Bible, have some version of a Christian worldview, they don't have the gospel. They don't have the gospel. They don't have the good news. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the gospel is foolishness to those that don't have the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says that these things are not visible, not clear. They are foolishness to the natural man because they are spiritually discerned. That you can read your Bible, you can have your Bible, you can study your Bible, you can memorize your Bible, and in doing all of that, never get the gospel. We know this by experience, right? Like you've, you've sat at dinner or you've sat at lunch or you've had those debates at work with that guy that knows a lot about the Bible but doesn't love Christ. That knows a lot about the Bible but obviously has never personally experienced the gospel in his life. 
Man, Mormons have the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses have the Bible. Orthodox Jews have the Old Testament. And yet, having the Bible, they do not have the gospel. This is where the eunuch was. The eunuch says, how am I supposed to know unless somebody shows it to me? How am I supposed to know unless somebody guides me? That word guide, I think, is a significant one. It's the same exact word that Jesus uses in John chapter 16 to refer to the work of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is going to come and the Holy Spirit is going to guide you in the truth. The Holy Spirit is going to guide you in the mission. The Holy Spirit is going to guide you in the will of the Father. And so you have the eunuch and he's saying, how will I know, how can I see this unless somebody guides me? You see, before you become a Christian, there are some things you have to know. Before you become a Christian, there are some things you have to know. There are some things that you have to learn. The, the reaction, the instinct of man is to suppress the truth. And so even though God is clearly perceived in the creation, when it comes to the gospel, we suppress the truth. And so we have to learn the truth. Our minds, our logic, our rationale, all of it is fallen. All of it is cursed by sin so that we cannot see the truth about God plainly. We have to learn it. So do you know what that means? That if we are going to share the gospel, if we are going to win a generation to Christ, if we are going to win our co-workers to Christ, if we are going to win our children to Christ, if we are going to win our husband or our wife to Christ, if we are going to win people to Christ in Lots Creek and Mexico and Swaziland and Salt Lake, if we are going to win people to Christ, we have to train them, teach them, instruct them in the gospel. They may very well have their Bibles and not have the gospel. In other words, we have to disciple them to Christ. We have to disciple them to Jesus. So we have this mindset that we do evangelism up until the point of salvation and then at salvation we kind of hand over the baton from salvation into discipleship. So, so in, in evangelism we're always saying just repent, 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 repent. You know like trust Jesus, trust Jesus, trust Jesus, follow Jesus, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. But we aren't explaining what any of that means. And then when they come into the church we start saying now Here's, here's why this is a big deal. Here's who you are to be in Christ. Here's who God has made you to be. Here's what Christ has done. But you know what? Discipleship does not begin at conversion. Discipleship begins at hello. That we have to teach them some things. We have, to, we have to teach them the nature of sin. We have to teach them who they are. We have to teach them what their story is. We have to teach them why there's so much brokenness. We have to teach them what, who Christ is and what Christ has done and why what Christ has done matters. We have to teach them that if you follow Christ, to count the cost and in counting the cost, what that's going to look like. We have to teach them obedience. Remember Christ said in the Great Commission, teaching them all that I have commanded you. 
That we have to instruct them in all of these things so that they can see this is not a fairy tale. This is not some far-fetched thing. This is not some abstract spiritual world that nobody can discern. No, God has given us the word and God has given us the spirit so that we can know these things and so that we can teach these things so that those who are outside of Christ must, might be able to know and seek Christ and be drawn in. That you are the means by which the Holy Spirit uses to draw unbelievers to Christ. In other words, disciples of Jesus are responsible to disciple people to Jesus. Disciples of Jesus are responsible to disciple people to Jesus. You know, the way that we like to think about evangelism, we like to think about evangelism as an explosion, right? Like we, we like to have this, this idea of like, we're just gonna go into school one day that we get really excited and we're just gonna like drop this gospel grenade and it's gonna go off and revival's gonna come. We, we like to have this idea that we're gonna, we're gonna show up at work and, and we're gonna be really, really bold that day. So we're gonna drop a gospel grenade. We're gonna step back, watch the shrapnel and as the gospel grenade kind of just goes off, we're just gonna say, all right, we're just gonna kind of collect them. All right, Christian, 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 Christian. And there's gonna be this great awakening. And man, God can do that. God sometimes does that. But most of the time, evangelism doesn't happen in an explosion. Most of the time, evangelism happens through a process of erosion. See, most of the time, it's not us placing a stick of dynamite into the midst of somebody's mountain of sin and mountain of, of unbelief and mountain of, of skepticism and watching that all at one time explode. Sometimes it does. But most of the time, it's less like a stick of dynamite and it's more like the mighty Colorado River cutting through over years and years and decades and decades and centuries and centuries and millennia and millennia carving from a mountain, the Grand Canyon. Most of the time, our evangelism is us steadily sowing the truth of the gospel, teaching the gospel, speaking up courageously, boldly for Christ, defending Christ, loving someone, serving someone so that over time their resistance to the gospel is eroded. So that over time their misnomers about the gospel are eroded. So over time their skepticism and, and man when real life happens and you face tragedy and you face hardship man it's like natural disaster erosion right? And so it erodes even more quickly. And so over the course of time the gospel the, the, the Lord uses faithful gospel witness to erode away all of man's pride and all of man's arguments and all of man's foolishness until a man is left nothing but himself saying, give me Christ or I will die. Give me Christ and nothing else. Give me Christ. But you want to know the truth? The church would be much, would be much, is much happier with the idea of an explosion than they are with an erosion. Because what all of us like is all of us like to be there when the ribbon is cut, right? Like everybody likes to go to the big new building and, and get their little golden shovels and all that stuff and their golden scissors and they got the ribbon spread out in front of the, the building and you cut the ribbon and the building is opened and we're up for business, right? Like, like everybody likes to be there for that. But not everybody likes to be there to build the building, 
Because that's hard work. Because that requires obligation. Because that requires blood, sweat, and tears. Because that requires some long days. That requires some early mornings. That requires some late nights. That requires some problem solving. That requires some critical thinking. And I think for us in the church, we have become so accustomed to event-driven evangelism, even program-driven evangelism, so that we can say, you know what, I'll give you an afternoon, so I'll set up chairs and I'll do my thing, I'll cook some food, as long as I can know when it's over and I can go home and be finished and feel like I've washed my hands of evangelism. We, 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 we like methods where we might even say, I'll give you a Tuesday night. I'll give you one night of the week and I'll make that evangelism night so long as the other six nights of the week get to be Cody nights. I'll give you one night of the week. I'll give you one afternoon of the year and I'll invest in that. And I believe I'm gonna pray that God's gonna use that as a gospel explosion. And sometimes he does and sometimes that's good. And I don't think we should throw all that out. But most of the time, people don't. Most of the time, people don't. See, the problem with evangelism in the 21st century is it become, has become cheap, superficial, and convenient. We don't want obligatory responsibility. We don't want obligatory evangelism. We don't want the kind of evangelism that requires us to stay up. We don't want the kind of evangelism that requires us to be uncomfortable day in and day out. We don't want the kind of discipleship in our life that means I don't know when I get to be finished. I don't know when it's going to be over. I don't know when the decision day is going to come. I don't even know that I'm going to sow over the entire course of my life, die, and him come to faith after I'm dead and gone. We don't want that. But brothers and sisters, can I tell you something? If you're looking for an obligation-free, money-back guarantee, Christianity, it will not be found in the scriptures. It will not be found in the Bible because disciples of Jesus disciple people to Jesus. The disciples of Jesus are not in it for the short haul. They're not in it for an afternoon. They're not in it for a night of the week. Disciples of Jesus are in it for a lifetime, laying down themselves that they might sow the truth in the lives of other people. Now I want you to see the next key phrase. Because it's important that you know that, that that sounds big, that's overwhelming, that's hard. But you know what? You don't go in your power. You don't go alone. And you don't go without the Spirit's preparation. Look at, listen, to the next key phrase I want you to notice is right there in verse 29. And it says, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And the Spirit said to Philip. So, so imagine the picture, right? Like the angel has come to Philip. The angel has said, this is where you are to go. This is what you are to do. This is who, you know, or has not said, this is what you're to do, but this is where you're to go. He goes to the spirit. The spirit says, all right, there he is, bro. Go get him. Go get him. Go find him. And he's like, all right. And he just starts running, right? But you know, there, there, there's something big in there for us. There's something big in there for us. You see, the unit did not so much as, or the, the Philip did not so much as go as he was sent. He was sent. 
The, the Spirit had prepared the eunuch. The Spirit had prepared the day. The Spirit had prepared the, 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 the work that Philip was to do. The Spirit had gone way ahead of Philip so that Philip would come. And even though he didn't understand, and even though he didn't see, and even though he didn't know what he was going to do, the Spirit had gone ahead to prepare all of these things for Philip so that it would come together at just the right time. I want you to think about the role of providence. In other words, I want you to think about the role that the Holy Spirit has played that Philip is totally unaware of at this point so that the eunuch can come to faith. Okay, so first of all, the, the Spirit is the author of the Bible, right? The Spirit is the author of the Bible. All of Scripture is God-breathed. That is, it is indwelt with the Spirit. The Spirit works through ordinary men to construct and to pen, to author the Bible. So the, the Spirit, some seven, six, seven, eight hundred years prior to the eunuch, prior to Philip, has written the book of Isaiah. Okay? Now, that's not even enough. Then, when Philip finds the eunuch, He's not just reading Isaiah 1. He's not reading Isaiah 3. He's not reading Isaiah 3 of 8. He's not reading Isaiah 40. He's reading specifically Isaiah 53. And the only way that he catches him to read Isaiah 53 is that their paths intersect at exactly the right moment. This, this, this eunuch almost certainly had purchased this very expensive scroll and he's been reading the whole time, kind of figuring out like, like you got to understand, a scroll in the eunuch's day would be like DVD players in the back of the, the seats for the kids, right? Like this is your on the road entertainment. This is how you help a long journey pass quickly. And so the eunuch is reading and he's like, Isaiah 1, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 10, Isaiah 20, 30, 40, 50. And the eunuch's like, oh my heavens, what does this mean? What is this? And yet it just so happens that he gets to Isaiah 53, where it says that he will be crushed by our iniquities. He will, that we will be healed by the stripes on his back. He gets to that prophecy. He gets there. And that just so happens to be where Philip catches up to him. That just so happens to be where their paths intersect and where he says, do you understand what you're, that just so happens to be. No, brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God was in the details. The Spirit of God was there. The Spirit of God was there. You see, the Spirit will not send you to a place that He has not prepared for you. The Spirit will not send you to a place where you will go by yourself. No, the Spirit will send you to places that you don't understand to do things that you don't want to do, to, to be a part of things that are inconvenient and obligatory and uncomfortable. But the Holy Spirit will be with you. And the Holy Spirit will prepare them for you. So that if you obey the Spirit, you will bear witness to the power of God in the life of somebody else, watching them be transformed by the gospel. Church, do you want to be a part of a great movement of the power of God. Do you want it? I mean, do you really want it? Do you wake up in the morning longing to see God work? Do you wake up in the morning hoping that today you get to witness glory come into the earth? Do you wake up day in and day out praying, God, let me be a part of a life change today?
God, let me glimpse your glory today. God, let me witness the miraculous. Let me witness the supernatural today. Do you wake up like that? Then obey the Spirit. Obey the Spirit. If you want to see a great movement of God in your life, and you want to see a great movement of God in your church, and you want to see a great movement of God in your community, and you want to see a great movement of God among the nations, obey the Spirit. Disciples of Jesus who disciple people to Jesus, obey the Spirit. Here's what we pray. God, let me see the miraculous today. God, let me see the supernatural today. God, let me witness revival today. Let me see the outpouring of your glory today. And then we reject all of the promptings of the Holy Spirit in the most ordinary of things. The Spirit comes to us and he prompts us to pray and we turn up the radio. The Spirit comes to us and he prompts us to read our Bibles and to delight in the scriptures. And yet we hit next on the Netflix veg out. The Spirit comes to us and he, and he prompts us to talk to our neighbor, to engage in some kind of spiritual conversation. And we come up with all of the reasons and all of the excuses in our minds as to why that's not wise. And day in, day out, even in the most ordinary of tasks, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. Church, do you want to see something powerful? Do you want to see something mighty? Do you want to see the grace of God sweep across our community? Do you want to see his mercy turning broken lives right side up? Do you want to see that? Obey the Spirit, church. Obey the Spirit. How many more people would have heard of the gospel if we would just obey the Spirit? How many more people in your life over the course of your Christian faith would have heard the truth about Jesus Christ if when the Lord prompted you to share your faith, you just did? What, do you not believe the Spirit was preparing you? Do you not believe that the Spirit had prepared them? Do you not believe that the Spirit was with you? Do you believe He would call you to that just because He wants you to be, uh, wants you to just, you know, be annihilated or something? No, the Spirit is with you. How many more people would we have shared the gospel with? If every time the Spirit prompted us to read our Bibles, we would read and we would come to passages like Roman, like Acts chapter 8 and be convicted of our unfaithfulness in evangelism. And so then we would go out and evangelize. How many more people would hear? How many more people would have come to faith through the answering of our prayers if every time the Spirit prompted us to pray, we would plead with Him for the lost husband in our home, for the lost daddy of our kids, for the lost co-worker and friend. For how many more people would hear the gospel among the nations if we would plead with God to raise up more workers and more missionaries as often as the Spirit has prompted us? You know what? It was just a plain, ordinary thing. Go to Gaza. It was just a, a random thing, go to the eunuch. But the Spirit of God was there and Philip got to witness the outpouring of his power, the outpouring of his witness, and the transformation of a man. How many of those have we missed? How many of those have we missed? Disciples who disciple people to Jesus obey the Spirit. The next phrase that I want us to look at is where it says, in verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth. Then Philip opened his mouth. That seems so simple, doesn't it? Hey, eunuch, 
Do you understand what you're reading? Nope, don't have a clue. Well, here's what it means. You know, I point that out because we live in a day in 21st century of, uh, church in which we want our evangelism be, to be by methods of marketing, not personal witness. We, we, we live in a day in which we want to find every means possible to share the gospel apart from actually speaking the gospel. We live in a day in which to speak out boldly for Christ, even lovingly and gracious for Christ, is seen as being unneighborly, politically incorrect, and intolerant. We live in a day that wants to muffle the church and stifle the church and silence the church. But brothers and sisters, full of the Holy Spirit of God, armed with the gospel of God, we cannot be silent. Like Philip with the eunuch, we must open our mouths. Now, when Philip opened his mouth, he had something to say, didn't he? When Philip opened his mouth, he had something to say. And you know what? That means he'd been preparing himself, doesn't it? That means that he had been a student of the scriptures himself. What good would it have done if he had been heard Isaiah 53 and not recognized it? What good would it have done if he hears the, the eunuch reading this passage and the eunuch says, I don't understand, can you teach me? And Philip looked back and said, I don't really know it either, never read it before. No, Philip had prepared his heart Philip had prepared his mind. He had loved the Lord our God with all of his heart and with all of his mind and with all of his strength. And out of the overflow of his walk with the Lord, when it came his moment to speak, the Spirit could bring to his remembrance all of the things that he had already poured in there. In other words, disciples of Jesus who disciple people to Jesus they are people who are being discipled nearer to Jesus themselves. Do you catch that? That's a lot. I, I, let, me, let, me, let me slow that down, all right? Let me slow that down. Disciples of Jesus who disciple people to Jesus are people who are being discipled nearer to Jesus themselves. In other words, they are people who are growing in the faith. They are people who are maturing in the faith. They are people who are devoted to the scriptures. They are people who are devoted to Christian service. They are people who are devoted to the life of their church. They are people who, even though they don't have to have the information in the moment, want the information, want the truth of the gospel, want the glory of the scriptures, knowing that God is going to use it for their good, his glory, and the advancement of the kingdom later on. The best teams are the ones that work hard on Monday. And then when Saturday rolls around, they're ready. The best employees are the ones that go and they, and they become an expert and competent in things that their boss has not even asked them to be competent in yet so that when a crisis emerges, when, when a new opportunity comes, they are there ready to seize the opportunity and to advance the good of the kingdom or the good of the company. And this is the life of the Christian that we don't stand pat with where we are, but instead, like Paul said in Philippians 3, we strain forward, we press on. Whatever we know about Christ, we seek to know more. Whatever we love about God, we seek to love more. Whatever we've seen of his glory, we seek to find even more of it. See, I think we've become too comfortable with 
the whole methodology of as long as you know your testimony, you know enough. Can I tell you something? There is a time in the Christian's life in which if all you know is your testimony and John 3, 16, praise God. Praise God. It is enough. It is enough that I believe that from the very second you were ushered into the kingdom by the Holy Spirit and the gospel, that at that very moment, you can become a mighty evangelist filled with the power of God for the advancement of the kingdom. But it is to desecrate, to desecrate the gospel, to be content with that. It is to desecrate the gospel, to say, I have my testimony, I have John 3, 16, and I don't need anything else, even though I've been a Christian for 5, 10, 15, 30 years. There comes a point in your life in which you ought to go deeper. Day by day, moment by moment, one verse at a time, one prayer at a time, one book at a time, one discipleship relationship at a time, moment by moment, Jesus, take me deeper. Let me see more. Because can I tell you something, church? Jesus is better than you think he is. Oh, yes, he is. Jesus is better than you think he is. You think he's good? All you guys, your testimony in John 3, 16, man, that's good, isn't it? It's good. He delivered you. You were an enemy to him. And yet now you are his son. Now you are his daughter. You were in darkness and now you're in light. God so loved the world that he has sent his only son that whoever would believe in him might be delivered from their sins. Praise God, that is good. But church, that is not all. That is not all. Jesus is more gracious than you know him to be. Jesus is more loving than you know him to be. Jesus is more glorious than you know him to be. Jesus is kinder than you know him to be. Jesus is greater than you believe him to be. I don't care how much you know. I don't care how glorious you think he is. I don't care how gracious you think he is. I don't care what kind of sin he saved you from. Jesus is better than that. How can you be content? How can you be content for all eternity? You will be gathered around the throne of Jesus, going deeper into his grace, going deeper into his majesty, going deeper into his glory, and you will never find the end. He is better, church. He is better. Man, I just spilled water and everything else up here. Go as deep as you can with Jesus. Go as deep as you can in the spirit. Go as deep as you can in the Bible. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, if you're doing that, the spirit is going to offer you opportunities to share the gospel and you will have something to say. You will have something to say. Because disciples of Jesus who disciple people to Jesus will be drawing near to Jesus themselves. The final phrase that I want us to see is in verse... Um, it's in verse 38, 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, if you study the entire book of Isaiah, you know what you'll never find in the book of Isaiah? Baptism. They had spent some time together. They had covered the entirety of the gospel. 
See, disciples of Jesus that disciple people to Jesus, disciple people in the fullness of the gospel. They don't give them a fraction. They don't give them the blessings without the costs. They don't give them the grace without the obedience. No, they call them to the fullness of the gospel. Obey Christ. Surrender to Christ. Be baptized as Christ has commanded you to be baptized. As we disciple, as we make disciples in our community, let's not make false converts that think that they're getting some great sales pitch when the truth is they're inviting the calamity of the enemy into their lives. No, let's sell them on the fullness of the gospel, a gospel that requires obedience or a gospel that requires self-denial. But brothers and sisters, let's not tell them it's about a list of chores. It's not. Let's not tell them it's about a list of do's and don'ts and a checklist. It's not. When we invite them to obedience, we are inviting them out of slavery and into freedom. We are inviting them out of destruction and into glory. We are inviting them out of hopelessness and into purpose. We are inviting entire communities, villages, and to be totally, utterly transformed by an obedient life to Christ. In other words, we're inviting them out of slavery and we're inviting them into joy because you can not have full joy in Christ apart from obedience in Christ. You know, disciples of Jesus who disciple people to Jesus disciple people in the fullness of the gospel. Church, in front of us is the opportunity, but not only the opportunity, the responsibility to change a generation. To change a generation. We live in the least biblically literate generation in the history of our country. We can't assume what they know. We have to teach them. We can't go surface level anymore. Our community cannot afford it. Our children cannot afford it. Our mamas and our daddies and our granddaddies, they cannot afford it. Church, we cannot afford surface level, non-obligation, money back, guaranteed Christianity. No, church, in the spirit of God, we're armed with the word of God. We must take hold of the mission of God with all of our hearts to be disciples that disciple people to Christ. And if we do that by the power of God, by the grace of Jesus Christ, through the fullness of the Spirit, we will see a generation changed. Let's pray together.